And open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 4. I love watching projects like what's going on here at the church. Uh, I, I love being able to see that kind of day by day and even within a day. Um, I, I enjoy doing my own repairs on my house, and, and, and uh, most of you know that. And I, I enjoy watching folks like this work because they're extremely skilled at what they do, extremely knowledgeable, and, uh, you know, you can watch them work and Occasionally, I'll ask them questions, and, and uh, I, I can pick up a skill or two, and I can learn that there are some things I should leave to the pros, like stucco work. I'm pretty sure if I was doing the work with the kind of material they've been using, there would definitely be more on the ground than there is on the building. When I arrived on Thursday morning, the painters were just starting to do their work, and uh, or starting to do their, they need to do pressure washing, and they, they said, where's the hose bibs, and, and uh, there's one on one side and one on the other of the building, and I knew that Don had already told me there's a problem with this one over here, and, and, and uh, as we discussed it, we figured out the best solution would be to put one of those little inline shutoff valves on the outside, turn it on on the inside, then it can be controlled, because the outside valve needs to be replaced, and that's a whole other story that is more complicated than it sounds. So I went to the hardware store. Got to get these guys, uh, got to get them going. I don't want to hold them up. So I went to the hardware store, and I looked over the selection of inline valves, and I picked one that had two spigots on it. thought, hey, two spigots is better than one. And uh, so I came back, and it uh, turns out two is not better than one because one of them was defective and wouldn't close all the way. So I bundled up my little package and went back to the hardware store. And of course, they can't just exchange it and hand you the new one. No, we've got to log that in as defective and fool around and take the new one and go and get it squared away. All that happened on a morning when I arrived an hour early so I could get after my work while it was cool. I don't have air conditioning in my office. And while nobody was here, and I must confess to you that I was struggling to live in peace at that moment. <laughs> and I certainly would not describe my state of mind the way Paul did in Philippians 4.11 while he was sitting in jail. Not that I speak in regard to need, Philippians 4.11, for I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I have learned whatever state I am in, to be content. How is it possible to be at peace with wherever we find ourselves? You know, wherever you are, that's where you are. And the question we have to ask really is this, how can I? It, was he really at peace being in jail? Was he really content saying, hey, this is where I am, it's great? The Lord knows. The answer to that question, I believe, is found in the verses before that verse, starting back in verse 4 of Philippians 4. Please follow as I read. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Another command that you love, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, or whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's anything any virtue, if anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these things do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did lack care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. How is it possible to be at peace wherever we find ourselves? The first answer to that verse comes in verses 4 and 5, and I have called this unlimited faith. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's a very similar, that's a command form of what he says in verse 11. He says, I'm always content. We might even put it this way. I'm always content, therefore I can always rejoice. Well, why was it so easy for him to rejoice in the Lord always? I think the key is at the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand, or in some translations, the Lord is near. It's, uh, we, we like to quote the beginning of uh, verse 4 to other people when they aren't having too good of a day. Rejoice in the Lord always. But why does God's presence enable my peace? Why does God's presence enable me to rejoice always or to be content always? Uh, There are several things about God that we need to understand and to think about. And the first one is this. God is big enough. God is big enough. There's a lot of talk in the evangelical church world today about faith and about believing in God and and believing a lot, you need to understand that Paul didn't have a big faith in God. He had faith in a big God. And there's a difference. If your salvation is contingent upon you hanging on and not letting go, you're in trouble. If your Christian life, if the blessings of God are contingent upon you hanging on to him enough to get a blessing, you're in trouble. But if what God wants from you is to believe in him and how big he is and how powerful he is, then there's hope for your life. We don't need to believe more or better. We need to have a better informed faith in God. In the Tuckwilla Police Department, where I served, uh, when we lived down there, I served as a chaplain, one of our officers was about six foot seven and about 300 to 350 pounds, just a, a giant guy. He was very gentle, but you wouldn't know that necessarily looking at him right the first time. 
And one of the female officers told me, she said, I love to have Keith stand next to me when I talk to people. (laughs) Yeah. You're talking to somebody who might be a criminal, might be a suspect. Here's this giant guy, and, and they don't mess with her because of him. Hey, friends, God is near. I know most of you, if not all of you, believe God created the world. And I know that you believe he's created a heaven for us, and someday there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you believe he's big enough for your world right now? Do you believe he's big enough for the difficulties you face right now? Somehow it's easy for us to believe in creation. It's easy for us to believe in heaven. But when it comes to the difficulties we're in, we're going, boy, isn't there somebody who could do something? And we don't realize God is near. God is big enough, and we need to understand that about him. He's also aware enough. He's aware enough. Listen to these familiar verses from Matthew. Therefore, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And These are just typical questions that Jesus used to get people to think about common life. He wasn't zeroing in just on these things. Don't worry about your common life, for after all these things the Gentiles or the unbelievers are seeking, but your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Here's the question. When does God find out you have a need? In the morning when you say, oh God, I've got a need. Is he up in heaven going, oh my goodness, look at that. Jesus, we're going to have to do something about that. And you... I hope some of you are saying, yeah, I never thought about that before. God exists outside of time. He created time. The evening and morning were the first day. He created it. He stands outside looking at it all, and he knew it was coming when it came into your life. And I know there's a a great many theological questions to go with this, as in why did he allow it then? And we're going to come to that in a minute too. But the starting point is to say God knew. God knew. God is aware enough. That's why David wrote this in Psalm 139. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You understand my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. Do you get that? God knows your thoughts before you think them. You comprehend my path, the way that I'm walking through life, my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You've hedged me or fenced me in behind and before, and you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain to it. God has put a fence behind him before and put his hand on top. God is aware of what's going on in your life. 
I recently tried to take the, the ashtray assembly out of, my, out of the dash of my car, and uh, it's not because I've scarred it up with cigarettes, but for other reasons. And I'm trying to take this thing out, and so I'm smart enough, just barely smart enough to know that you can't force mechanical things. You've got to finesse them. You, you know, there's some way that they pop these dash pieces together. You slide a flat thing in, you try to push, you move, you move, get it about halfway out, and, and if that doesn't work, maybe you just pull a little bit. Wasn't coming. You know, these days, there is an instruction book on everything, and it's called the Internet. So sure enough, how to take an ashtray out of a Dodge Magnum station wagon, boom. And it comes up, and, and of all the crazy things, you, you, there's a whole piece on the dash, and you get a hold of the heat registers, and you push down, and this thing pops off. And no way, I thought, there's no way that's going to work. Sure enough, I pulled it all out. I'm an expert now. It'll do me well when I get the new ashtray because I ruined the old one trying to get it out the wrong way. <laughs> it won't open anymore. I can't put my little goodies in there that I like to keep around all the time. My hindsight is real good, but my foresight is often mediocre to poor. God sees us from a vantage point behind and before. He knows what's going on. He knows where we're headed. He knows what needs to happen. He knows what is best for us. He is aware enough. And not only is he aware enough, he's good enough. God is good enough. God isn't uncaring. Neither does he punish his children. One of the real strong misconceptions I find of the Christian life in my discussions with people, is that when we do wrong as a believer in Christ, somehow God has to make us suffer for that. That is not a Christian concept. God will bring discipline to get us to turn to the right thing. But he doesn't, he doesn't punish us as in, oh, you've got to pay for that bad thing you did. God doesn't allow us to go through unnecessary suffering. Important word, unnecessary suffering. He does allow us to go through suffering. He sends us through suffering. He opens the door sometimes for Satan to cause us problems. God does allow suffering in our life, but it's never unnecessary. It's never a waste. It always has value in his plans. Do you remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Sold into slavery by his brothers out of hatred, falsely accused by the wife of his master in Egypt, forgotten in prison after helping a fellow prisoner, made the second in command over all of Egypt, used by God to help the Egyptians and his own family, the, the family of Israel, to survive a famine. At the end of all of these events, and really um, well into his lifetime, I think we could say at least two-thirds of the way through his life, he had this to say about what God had done in his life. He talks to his brothers who sold him into slavery. As for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. I have no doubt that there are people in your life who may do things for evil reasons. They hate. 
They don't like, they're jealous, whatever. That's entirely possible. I have no doubt that Satan wants to stop you from walking the Christian life. And when God allows him, he can attack you. I have no doubt that our society at large wants to suppress Christianity and the truth of God's word. But I also have no doubt that God is good enough to orchestrate that all for good in our lives. And we need to believe that. God is always at work in my life for my good and for the advancement of his purposes in my world. When my peace is challenged, I need to remember that the God who is big enough, aware enough, and good enough is near. I'm not alone. He is near and he is at work. And so I can rejoice always. I can be content if I remember that God is near. Elizabeth Cheney, a poet many years ago, wrote this, wrote this truth up in a rhyme. Said a robin to a sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, I suppose that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Your concept of God is the prime factor in your ability to live in peace with wherever you are. Your concept of God. The Apostle Paul had absolute confidence that God was at work. And so even though he's in jail with an unknown outcome to his case, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Now you read this book and know that he had just the book of Philippians, you can know that there were challenges and, and things that were not easy in his life. So it's not as though he was in jail with no cares in the world. But his concept of God, that God was big enough, aware enough, and good enough, fueled his contentment. The second component of Paul's peace was what I've chosen to call exhaustive prayer. Um, look at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what will be the result of that? The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. When we think of the word exhaustive, we think of exhausted, like I'm tired, I'm exhausted. But the, the actual word has to do more with completeness. And some of the synonyms for this word are thoroughness, comprehensiveness, completeness, in-depth, extensive. There's a famous Bible study book called The Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. This is the first exhaustive concordance ever produced and really, to date, it's one of just a very, very few. You can imagine, you know, a concordance is when they look at every word in the Bible and they list every time it occurs in the Bible. You have a concordance. If you have a study Bible, you have a concordance in the back of it. And even if you just have a, you know, mine's not a, a full-on study Bible, but there's a, a, an abbreviated or abridged a, a concordance in the back of it. I put a picture of it here so you can see... Uh, a little more closely how small the print is 
on the 1,200 pages of concordance. And this is the word, this is the word peace. Right here, it's the word peace. And all of the times the word peace occurs in the Bible, that those columns right there. And so it's exhaustive. It goes through every occurrence of the English word peace, and it lists everyone. And it does some other things as well. It is an exhaustive concordance. I imagine it was called that because when the guy got done writing it, he was exhausted. <laughs> when I read Philippians 4, 6, I see a key word. And the key word is everything. Don't be anxious. Let me paraphrase that. Don't lose your peace, but in everything. Express your concerns to God. My question today is, is your prayer life like a Strong's Concordance? or more like the abridged version in the back of your Bible. I know it sounds really, it sounds really simplistic to say that prayer is gonna bring you to peace. I know that sounds simplistic, sort of like, you know, give two prayers and call me in the morning kind of a thing. But I find that to be the explanation offered by people who haven't tried it. I'm talking about real, exhaustive prayer in your life over everything that concerns you. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. And, you know, we could spend time studying the words for prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and request. I, I don't really think we need to do it. I think we just need to be more exhaustive in expressing our concerns to God. Other than getting married, the biggest decisions I've ever had to make in my life were to move from one church to another. And I take those very seriously because I know it affects the body of Christ and me and my family. And I remember... When I was in Boardman, Oregon, and contemplating leaving there to go to Tukwila, that I would pray. And when I got done praying, then I would think about all these concerns and questions and ideas and what ifs. And you know what I found? I didn't have any peace. And somewhere after doing that for I don't know how long, days or whatever, all of a sudden I woke up and I went, Dave. You're supposed to pray about all your concerns. You're supposed to tell God, what about this and what about that? And I'm concerned for this and I'm concerned for that. And you're supposed to keep doing that until the well is run dry of concern. Until you've truly and literally given all your concerns to God. Let me give you some examples of ways you can pray when you are anxious and be exhaustive in your prayer. The first request would be this. God, please help me see your power. I have no doubt that God is powerful enough and that he is at work, but sometimes I don't see it. 
I don't notice what's going on. And, you know, in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul prayed that their eyes would get open so that they could see what was the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God is at work, but sometimes I am so focused down here on my problem that I don't see what he's doing. And I need to say, oh God, let me see your hand at work. Help me to see when, you know, you've been orchestrating things behind and before and I don't even see it. Help me to see that. Help me to perceive that. Because when we do, we are encouraged that God is at work. Number two, please show me how to live through this while I am in it. James chapter 1 makes it very clear that God will allow difficulties and it is our job to walk righteously through this challenging time. And so it's perfectly right to say, oh God, show me how to walk. Now we obviously take that from God's word first and foremost, but we pray how to apply God's truth. And we understand this precious promise. There is no temptation or test that has overtaken you such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested or tempted beyond what you can bear but with the temptation will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it you're in a room with doors and the question is not can I get out but the question is what is God's way out how do I walk forward? God, I know you want me to move through this trial. I, I know you want me to hang in there. I know you're doing something good. And, and I see uh, way left and way right. They're both righteous. Show me the way to go. Pray that prayer and seek God's direction with an open heart saying, I'll go however or wherever you show me to go. Number three, please strengthen me through this. This is, this is praying for what God wants to do. God wants to use difficulty in your life to make you more like Christ and to, to make you a, a better Christian. Please strengthen me through this. Apostle Peter prays this near the end of his book. May the God of all grace who called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, would be nice if that wasn't there, but after you've suffered a while to perfect to establish, to strengthen, and settle you. To perfect. This means to be brought to maturity in Christ, to establish, strengthen, and settle. You, you can get to a point as a Christian where, according to Ephesians 4, you're not swayed by every wind of an idea that comes along, like the waves and the sea. Oh, oh, oh. You can get to the point where, where you're the anchor. You're the, you're the buoy anchored to the floor and you're not going anywhere because God has been at work. And that's something to pray for. Oh, God, strengthen me through this. Um, you know, Jeb, Jeb is, is wise enough in, in his advanced age of 15 to say, you know what, it's kind of tough to be righteous when you haven't had enough sleep. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I struggle with that on a lot of days. Does God want him to learn 
how to be righteous when he's a little bit sleep deprived? You bet he does. Is it right to pray that God would strengthen him so that he will learn how to do that? Yeah. Is that going to be helpful someday when he has a kid that's awake all night long? Oh, man. God, strengthen me. That's a great prayer. Number four, please help me to see what good you're doing in this. We should never question God. God, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing this? Why don't you do something different? No, we got no business questioning God. God has big shoulders, but that doesn't mean it's okay for you to complain. But it's absolutely right to say, God, I know you're doing good. Would you open my eyes so I could see that good? Because then I can rejoice in that good. The Apostle Paul, he said, some people, here I am in jail, he said, some people have been strengthened to be bolder in their witness because I'm in jail. And that excited him. So instead of being down in the mouth, oh, I'm in jail and I can't do the Lord's work, he's like, hey, I'm doing the Lord's work in a unique way because I'm in jail. God, please help me to see what good you are doing in this. Now, all of these things I've just been talking about are things, ways you could pray exhaustively. Give it all to God. I don't know if you know the words to the song that Joanna and Grace played it's an old song, and it's written in poetic language, which to our modern ears sounds kind of over the top. But it's likening us to Christ. He went to the garden, and he prayed, Oh, God, I've got this, this terrible thing I need to do for you, and it's tough, and I'm struggling with it. And he left the garden in peace. And so the, the pattern is there for us, and the song says... I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. In other words, it's early in the morning. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me. And he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there None other has ever known. He's not saying that nobody has had this level of joy. He's saying there is a unique joy with every Christian and their Savior. In the, as we like to call it, in the prayer closet. In the time when we are alone with him, pouring out our heart to him, giving him all of our concerns, asking for his help, asking for his wisdom. And the result of that is the peace of God that passes understanding. There is no human reason to be at peace in the midst of difficulty. Humanly, you should be upset. You should be anxious. You should be fretting about everything and what's coming. It is divine grace that God gives to us to be at peace through giving all of our concerns to him. No doubt the Apostle Paul by this time in his ministry, which is well into his ministry, was somewhat of an expert at giving concerns to God because he had a lot of concerns. We need to do the same thing. There's a third thing that we need to do. Um, 
There's, the, there's a verse to go with that point if I didn't share it with you already. Romans 8, 28. Help me to see the good that you're doing in this. But the third thing we need is focused thinking. Focused thinking. Look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, noble, just, and so on, think on these things. Um, I, I didn't put the diagram in your notes. Uh, frankly, it was just technically hard to accomplish. Um, so you can draw your own diagram if you like. <laughs> but the question is important. What are we to be thinking? I'm not going to uh, share very much about all of these words. You could do word studies. You could get out your Strong's Concordance and do a word study on each one of these words and to great benefit for your spiritual life. But there's a key concept here, and the concept is choosing to think. Choosing to think. And the things we're supposed to think are, are listed here. And uh, the first one is true. Whatsoever things are true. And the, the starting point for truth is who God is, like we've just been talking about. Who is God? And, and what things are true in my life, things that are noble or things that are, that are um, morally of good quality, things that are just or righteous. Uh, fairness is part of this idea. Things that are pure uh, in, a, in a moral sense and uh, things that are lovely, things that have value, intrinsic value, things that are admirable, things that you would like to be in Christ, things that are virtuous, things that are praiseworthy. There's a whole list of things. There's certainly some overlap in the words. There's some uniqueness in the words. But I want you to understand something about this and it comes from this question i mean we can look at all those words we have a sense of of all of the good things we should be thinking about but the real question is this how is it possible to think right how is it possible for me to choose how to think to focus my thinking we have you know a, a range of so-called mental illnesses called attention deficit disorder attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and a whole range of things to describe how people can't focus their thinking. And God says, you need to focus your thinking. And you say, well, how is that possible? Well, it's possible as we are transformed. Don't be conformed to this world. The idea in this verse is that when you became a Christian, you became a new person in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. And so if you're going to be conformed to the world, it literally means don't put on the clothing of the world or don't, don't cover your, up that newness in Christ with worldly stuff. Instead of putting on a worldly uh, lifestyle, be transformed, have your life transformed by the renewing of your mind. I hope you understand that salvation is a whole life experience. Body, mind, and soul. Now here's what I mean by that. When, let me just ask you class, when will your body be made perfect and like Christ? <laughs> when Christ comes to take all the Christians off the earth, 
If you're alive until that day, you will be changed as you are taken up. If you have already died, your body will be transformed and joined to your spirit and perfected in that day. And you will have a completely perfect physical existence beyond anything you can imagine. When you believed in Christ, your sins were removed and the life of Christ infused so that now internally you can become like Christ. And that is both something of your mind, how you think, and your behavior, how you act. One of the reasons Christians don't change and grow is they're trying to do things, but they haven't reordered their thinking And God says the key to change in our life is to have our thoughts transformed. Ephesians 4 puts it this way. You should put off concerning your former or unsaved conduct the old man which grows grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. When it comes to sinful thinking and righteous thinking, we know that some thoughts are sinful. We can easily say, well, Jesus said if a man lusts on a woman in his mind, he's committed adultery already. So we know that's wrong. We can, we can look at hatred. And we, we know God speaks about hatred and love, and we're not supposed to hate, and we are supposed to love. He speaks about bitterness. We know that's wrong, the lack of forgiveness and, and, you know, the idea that you would sit around and think about ways to break the law. We know those things are wrong. That's kind of a gimme. That's an easy one. But have you considered this to worry and panic and be anxious is the opposite of thinking like God? Can you imagine God running around heaven going, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, it's foolish and sacrilegious to even suggest it. And he says, you be like me, you be holy for I am holy. And so God expects us to become like him in our thinking. God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Clearly, God says it's possible for our mind to be transformed based on God's word. The key to thinking righteously is to think biblically, is to take our thoughts and hold them up to the Bible or or push them through the sieve of the Bible and only receive the biblical concepts that come out the other side. When you take in God's word, it pushes out other ways of thinking. It's a principle of replacement. You should put off the old man that grows corrupt and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you should put on the new man which was created in in God according to true righteousness. When we take in God's word, We make it possible to think like Christ. What is the greatest challenge in right thinking? The greatest challenge in right thinking. It's the choice. Look at Philippians 4.8. 
he, he, he makes this big list of things to think about. The one that I want you to think about most of all is that last little command. He names the way to think, but then he says, meditate on these things. Literally, choose to think on these things. The, uh, the word is written in a present tense and as a command. In Greek, when something was written in a present tense, it indicates ongoing action. Uh, it, it, it would be something like this. Be thinking this way consistently or continually. And the command nature of it means it is a command of God. So that if you are not thinking this way, you are breaking one of God's commands. The greatest challenge in right thinking is saying, I must choose to think this way. Right thinking begins with the knowledge of God's word and is implemented by a right choice, a righteous choice. I will stop thinking like an unbeliever. I will start thinking like a believer. You should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, they don't know how good God is and how big God is because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their heart. You don't have that. Your eyes have been opened. You can think right thoughts. You can choose to do that. And as you do, the way you think about your difficult circumstances will change. This is another episode of the Apostle Paul when he spent a short while in jail, but I want you to follow his way of thinking and acting here. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. The Apostle Paul and his companions were out preaching the gospel, and a big, a big riot broke out. And so the government officials said, well, let's beat them. You know, we got to do something to make the crowd happy. So we're going to beat them with rods. And when they had laid, laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. You know, we can read that so fast. I've never been beaten with a rod and then tossed into jail. That's got to be a disconcerting thing <laughs> having received such a charge the jailer he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks no 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 three hots and a cot here this is on a stone floor or a dirt floor with your feet stuck in the stocks so you can't turn on your side or whatever i mean you're just there but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Really? Is that what you do when your feet are in the stocks? Is that what I do when my feet are in the stocks? And of course, you know, revival broke out basically once people got saved. 
could that be what God was doing when he allowed them to get into that difficulty? Yeah. What do you suppose Paul felt like thinking? Do you suppose he had any questions at all where he thought, oh God, not again. I mean, the guy had been stoned, he'd been run out of town, I mean, you name it. Okay, God, if I have to. I, I suppose he was sorely tempted to think, you know, I think my preaching days are done. They didn't do it. He persevered. And when he got in there, he said, God is big enough, he's aware enough, and he's good enough. Therefore, I will rejoice. And he praised God in song. Wow. I have a neighbor down the street. This is not his yard. This is a, this is a generic photo. I would not put my neighbor's house on the, on the picture here. But he has not discovered we'd be gone. There's a number of people around me who have not discovered we'd be gone. This guy in particular grows a huge crop of dandelions every year. And I'm pretty sure some of them find their way onto my yard. Because I'm pretty vigilant with that kind of thing. (laughs) There is no such thing as weed management. You either eradicate them or they overtake your yard you don't say okay dandelions we're gonna have a peace treaty here see this zone right here it's all yours knock yourself out because they're not happy until they control the yard there is no such thing as stress management it either has to get converted into righteousness and worship by replacing worldly thoughts with godly thoughts or it will overtake the yard of your life. The great news is God has made it possible that it does not need to overtake us. Heavenly Father, you know that I'm not an expert in this. Even this week, while I was preparing this sermon, you tested me, and I'd say I got about a D. And you know there are things one after another that test our peace. And you're doing that on purpose because you want us to grow up. You want us to be more like Christ. And you've made it possible for us to live at peace wherever we are. I pray that we would practice your word this week a little bit more. In knowing you, in praying to you, in giving all of our concerns to you and focusing our thoughts on you. Father, may your peace rule in a greater way in Ferndale this week because of your truth. I pray in Christ's name, amen.